Do the gods exist? Or does a singular supreme god exist? And where do we even start on an issue with uh, so much history and debate about it? Well, high theory offers us two options uh, after the sorting out of many thousands of years of debate and discussion of these issues. If we want to know the truth about anything, particularly anything in religion, there's two major options that have sorted themselves out, and they go by the names revealed theology and natural theology. The theology part uh, is theos, the Greek word for God, and ology or logos uh, is to give an account of something. So we're trying to give an account of God or, or the gods. And the thesis of revealed theology is to say that all of the important truths are revealed by God or the gods directly to some human beings. Uh, many traditions will say any human being can have this personal revelation directed to him or her. But most of the mainstream religions will say that there are special individuals, mystics or prophets, who are singled out by God or the gods, and revelations are given to them. Those people then communicate them either orally or by writing them in a scripture that uh, then becomes authoritative. And the rest of us, the vast majority of us who did not experience these revelations, we should accept them on authority or on, on faith. And that's the revealed theology tradition. By contrast to that, there's a position that says if we want to know the truth about anything or about religion in particular, we should first look at nature and reason our way to our best understanding about whether the gods exist. So the idea here is that all of us, born with normal cognitive capacities, we can observe the world using our senses, we can categorize things, we can come up with hypotheses, we can engage in logical reasoning, and on the basis of that, if there is a god or the gods, we can reason our way to the gods. And in some cases, the argument is more specifically that the gods or God made the world, he also made us and gave us certain capacities that the gods want us to exercise so that we come to know them. So we're going in this lecture uh, for Open College Podcast be working within the natural theology tradition, and I want to look at the arguments and what I take to be the best argument for the existence of God and steel man it, presented it in its strongest form, but also present the criticisms of it and then state my views on it as, as well. But all of us, whether we've studied theology formally or not, are aware of the revealed versus natural theology options to us. For most of us, we are subjected to some conditioning by parents and other authority figures uh, who tell us what we should or shouldn't believe. And if we raise questions, sometimes we're told explicitly we should believe on the basis of the authority of the, uh, the conditioning figures. Uh, sometimes we're given a text and told that the answers are in that text. And sometimes we're told that if we pray or we pray up our minds correctly, we can ourselves reveal a direct revelation from, from God. So most of us are exposed to some aspects or all aspects of the revealed theology traditions. At the same time, each of us observes the world and we think about it and we look at the way the world works and we wonder why it works and we raise all sorts of questions that we put to ourselves and others and we engage in a process of reasoning as we try to come up with our best understandings for our own minds at whatever stage of, uh, of competence we are. 
And then by the time we become young adults and we're, uh, we're uh, mature intellectually, we have some combination of conditioning and appeals to authority and texts that we've been exposed to, plus our own observations and reasonings about the way the world works. So how do we put all of this together and process that? And that's the ex- process that most of us go through. Hopefully all of us go through uh, by the time we're coming to intellectual maturity and making the big decisions about what we're going to believe. Now, if we pursue this process formally, we'll come to realize that there are actually lots of arguments for and against the existence of God. And by my count, there are about 18 possible arguments, and about seven of them are kind of interesting, actually pretty interesting, and all of them are about the natural world, time, what it counts for the nature of time, causation, the fact that we're, there's morality seems to be operative in the universe, that the world is beautiful, that the world is uh, logical, and that mathematical formula seem to account for the way the world works. So how do we explain all of these things, causation, morality, beauty, logic, math, and so on? Is it the case that we can explain them through natural investigations and we see the universe as a self-contained phenomenon, or that really if we want to understand these phenomena, we have to go beyond the natural world to a supernatural world? And the ongoing debates are between those who say that we can explain all of them naturalistically and those who want to argue that the natural world is not sufficient. Uh, it's, it's lacking in uh, some important respect, and if we want to really understand, we need to go beyond to the natural world. But the point is that uh, both sides are appealing to observation and reasoning, and the debate goes on about the adequacy of the reasons for explaining the observations. Now, when the issue of natural theology arises, I think there's a, there's a gut check that each of us needs to uh, take stock of and be honest with ourselves about this, and it's about our commitment to reason. Natural theology says, and it makes a strong claim, that we should use observation and reason only in making up our minds about all issues. And of course, what we know is that some people uh, will say that they're committed to reason, but deep down, they really are not. They will go through through the motions. And so one, uh, one needs to make a decision for oneself. And of course, it's always very hard to tell when you're discussing with other people who say that they are interested in the arguments, how deep their commitment goes. So just see this first as a, as a personal commitment. You know, are you really willing to look at the naturalist arguments uh, in their strongest form, all of them, and give them a go? And if it seems that the naturalist can explain everything without appeal to supernatural forces, that's what you are going to believe. And then the same thing on the other side. If you look at their religious arguments uh, and you give them their strongest form and you give them the best chance and it seems like those are adequate and even necessary to explain the natural world, that's where your reasoning is going to take you, and that's what you're going to believe, that you're willing to take the naturalist arguments that they're strongest, but also subject them to the strongest possible criticisms, and the same thing on the other side, to take the religious arguments at their strongest, but also to take dead seriously the strongest objections against the religious arguments. 
And of course, uh, we know that there are some people who are not going to do so, and they will tell you explicitly that they are going to be subjectivists on there. They, they know what they believe, they know what they want to believe, and they are not really at all interested in looking at the evidence, looking at arguments for and against. In fact, they will say evidence and argument is irrelevant or, or an enemy of the faith, and so they are going to just stick with their non-rationally held beliefs. And there are those who are at the other end of the spectrum who do change their minds in in, in confrontation with what they take to be forceful arguments against what they uh, what they thought they believed and in favor of positions that they otherwise thought were weaker. Of course, there's a middle ground person. Uh, I think of this person as an implicit subjectivist and the person who really is a, a rationalist uh, or a rationalizer in the following sense that uh, they know what they're going to believe, but they want to go through the motions and pretend to themselves to some extent that they're a rational person or pretend to people that they're arguing with that they're a rational person. And uh, you know, so they will go through the motions of looking at the arguments, but typically they uh, resort to straw men or they run away uh, and, and have various devices and so on. So are you a subjectivist? Are you a rationalizer? Or are you fully committed to objective reasoning, make up your mind and proceed on the basis of this. And I do think that both atheists and theists are subject to all three of these possibilities. There are atheists who are not open to reason. There are theists who are not open to reason. There are theists who are open to the best arguments for and against, just as there are atheists. So initially, I don't see one way or the other. But I do want to make one uh, uh, history of philosophy point about, and this is just a journalistic point, about the big brains in the history of philosophy and theology. All of the traditional proofs or arguments for and against the existence of God. There is an interesting point about this that's worth worth highlighting. The uh, most vigorous era in human history of arguing for and against the existence of God was the era of the Enlightenment, kind of the long 1700s. And it makes sense. Science was rising in prestige, scientific method, and more broadly, the methods of observation and reason were growing in great prestige. And it seemed like uh, uh, with these new tools and a better understanding of them and a stronger commitment to apply them universally. We were figuring out an amazing amount of stuff. And so the idea was then, well, this hypothesis about God and all of our traditional beliefs, let's subject them to the arguments as well. And both theists and atheists and agnostics and people of all stripes were vigorously contesting all of the, the arguments over the course of the century-long Enlightenment era. But I want to uh, single out rather three names, David Hume, Immanuel Kant, and Soren Kierkegaard, mid-1700s, late-1700s, early-1800s, and all of them are giants in the history of philosophy and theology. And what's interesting about all three of them is that Hume is very explicitly an atheist. That's his conclusion. Kierkegaard is explicitly a theist, a very strong advocate of, uh, of uh, belief in the Christian religion in particular as the only way to find meaning in one's life. And Immanuel Kant, a man in the middle who wants to argue that there's a role for a kind of faith in life, but at the same time we should be creatures of reason. And he wants to work out this middle ground position that he calls a rational 
faith. But the point then is that they represent the full range of opinion that on this opinion, from outright atheism to outright theism to somewhere in the middle, and all three of them are recognizably geniuses of the era. But all three of them agree that the arguments for the existence of God do not work. And this was the conclusion that most of the deep thinkers of the era reached about the arguments. And it is now a century and a half to two centuries later, the position of most people. But that's a journalistic point, and the arguments nonetheless have a persistent popularity for good reason. One should not appeal to authority ever. Uh, one should make up one's own mind on all of these issues and sort them out. It may be that uh, some things were overlooked, and uh, philosophy is a do-it-yourself enterprise. It doesn't do you any good just to say, here's some smart people who reached this conclusion, so this is what you should believe. So what I want to do is now turn to what I take to be, in my estimate, the most interesting and the most powerful of the arguments for the existence of God. It's called the design argument, or more formally, uh, using a Greek name, it's called the teleological argument. And I think this is the argument that is most appealed to by professionals and by lay people who think seriously about the existence of God. And in my estimation, it's the argument that uh, uh, more than any other argument, at least in my experience, has taken people who are perhaps agnostic or, or even atheist and uh, caused them to change their minds about whether they believe in the existence of a God. So that then is to say, this is an argument well worth our time. Now, the core idea of the design argument uh, is that in order to explain the cause and effect order of the natural world, we have to appeal to a divine designer. That's to say that the complexity of reality and all of the cause and effect that we, we observe cannot be the product of random chance, this language sometimes is, or uh, just a roll of the dice or anything like that, that there must be a powerful intelligence behind it all that brought that order into existence and that keeps the universe on track, so to speak, keeps it obeying the laws of the universe, so to speak. Now, this is uh, sometimes given, as I mentioned, the, tele the name the teleological argument from the Greek word telos, that is to say that things seem to be made for a purpose or with an end in mind. This leads to that, which leads to this, and so forth. And so to understand why certain things are the way they are, we have to understand them as causally supporting a process that's going to reach a certain end. And so the universe seems to be designed from this perspective with a purpose in mind. So there are some famous advocates of this, St. Augustine, 1600 years ago, uh, remarking on the amazing complexity of the human being and saying, you know, if we're trying to understand where we came from and we just look at ourselves and it's, it's awesome. And can we have made ourselves? Could the blind forces of nature have created us? And the argument that Augustine is rhetorically stating is no way. This is from his confessions, quote, where could a living creature like this right, have come from, if not from you, Lord? Are any of us skillful enough to fashion ourselves? Unquote. Well, the answer to that rhetorical question is no, right? None of us, however smart and intelligent and powerful we think we are, we couldn't make another human being. So therefore, there must be something even more powerful and intelligent that did so. A more recent famous example is from uh, the Reverend William Paley, 
uh, the famous watchmaker analogy that's uh, a staple in many introduction to philosophy and religion courses. And Paley will argue, you know, if you were out for a walk and you happened to kick a stone and you looked at the stone and you say, you know, why is the stone here? What made the stone? And you know, most of us are perfectly happy with naturalistic explanations. You know, well, you know, maybe volcanoes and uh, internal forces of the earth spit it out and the glaciers and weather shaped it and so forth. But there's no particular reason why the stone is there. It's just a blind, brute fact of nature. But if you were to walk along and you were to kick something and you were to bend down and pick it up and you picked up uh, what looked like a watch and you you, know, you see that it's you know, perfectly circular and it's got these uh, gear things that you can turn. And if you were then curious and you took the watch apart and you noticed the amazing array of springs and gears and levers inside and how it all fits together to make the hands move and so on. And then you would say, well, yeah, there's no way that just natural forces made this watch. There must have been very skillful intelligence behind this. And so from the existence of this watch, we can infer there must be a watch maker. But of course, the universe is much more complicated than a pocket watch. So the universe must have a universe maker. And that's the central intuition of the argument from design. Are you looking for a new book to dive into? Then check out audiobooks.com. With over 150,000 premium titles, they have an incredible selection of books to get stuck into, whatever your genre of preference. Listening to audiobooks makes reading incredibly easy and enjoyable. Not only do you have instant access to thousands of titles, but powerful narrators can bring the text to life, often giving a book more meaning than just flicking through the pages itself. Do more with audiobooks and start your next book while multitasking, doing the laundry, taking a drive, going for a walk, doing exercise or something else. With audiobooks, you can even read your books with your eyes closed. Sign up today for a 30-day free trial and get three audiobooks completely free. Go to www.audiobooks.com and click sign up to get started. And please help support the podcast by entering our promo code, OpenCollege, which is all one word. Fall in love with books again with audiobooks.com. And while you're online, please show your support for the podcast by leaving a view on your favorite media player. Now back to the podcast. Now I want to do a next go more systematically to the, the, uh, the argument. Uh, I'm going to give you a seven-step version of the argument. And when we post the transcript, we'll have that uh, laid out. And then what I want to do is uh, having laid out the seven steps, making it as, as uh, clearer and uh, elegant as I can, I'll then uh, turn to looking at each of the seven steps and raising the kinds of questions and criticisms that are possible for it. Now, the first step of the argument is to say the natural universe is orderly. Uh, the seasons are regular. Right? Spring succeeds winter, winter succeeds fall, fall succeeds summer, and so on. There are various chemical processes that are consistent. There are biological processes. When the spring comes, you plant the seed of, say, a watermelon, and nature takes its course, and what grows is big watermelons, right? And it's always right, watermelons that emerge, you know, not uh, chocolate milkshakes or whatever. A man and a woman come together and have sex, and what they give birth to after an amazing, again, very complex series of 
causal processes is another human baby. We take our microscopes and we look at the crystalline structures of various small things, or we take telescopes and we look at the heavens and the skies, and we're struck again by amazing complex orderliness. Now, this is a natural theology argument, so that then is to say this argument is starting with observation and categorization, and then on the basis of that, we're trying to explain the way the world works, and so we're functioning as scientists, and this is our baseline scientific observation about the nature of the world. So, that's step one. That's the first premise of the argument. The second premise of the argument is to say that especially in the cases of complex order, we say that complex order cannot have arisen from within the universe itself. And that's a negative formulation. And sometimes we might say, you can't, looking at various complex things, the human eye, uh, the gravitational constants, and so forth, say that somehow they just spontaneously or randomly or through luck or whatever, that the universe just generated these things. These things are too complex to have happened that way. And that then is to say, to put it positively, another way to formulate this step is to say, complex order must be imposed from without the universe, or it has to be imposed upon the universe. And so that's the second premise about the nature of complex order. Now, if you put those two premises together, that the natural universe is complexly orderly, and that complex order cannot arise from within the universe itself, the next step is to say, therefore, and this is a logic move, complex order requires the existence of an external orderer that imposed order on the natural universe. Now, Next step of the argument, and this is now step four, is to say, well, what kind of external orderer would we have to be talking about? What kind of being would be capable of imposing order on an entire universe and to be able to, uh, in all of those ex ex extraordinarily complex natural laws and scientific principles that we've discovered, be able to understand, articulate, and, and design, so to speak, the world in terms of them. And so we then say this external order, and this is the fourth step, must have a high degree of intelligence and a high degree of power. That is to say, it must be a supernatural, superior to anything in the natural world, more intelligent than any of us and more powerful than any of us. We know that we're intelligent enough to figure out lots of things. We know that we're powerful enough to make certain things happen. But imagine the degree of intelligence and power that is necessary to design or impose or to create the schema for an entire universe and to make that entire universe bend to its will. So we must be talking about a supernatural being superior in intelligence and powerful. So the next premise is then just the external orderer must be super intelligent and super powerful. Now, the next step is then another inference move. You know, if we have already concluded that the complex order that exists in the universe requires an external orderer and that that external orderer must be super intelligent and powerful, we can conclude there must be a super intelligent and powerful orderer that exists. And then the next step is going to be a linguistic step. Let's just say, well, that's a lot of syllables, super intelligent and super powerful orderer of the entire universe. Let's just give that being a name. Let's call the being God. And then on the, we can conclude, therefore, God 
exists. Now, that's seven steps. And anyone can see that the argument does have some logical force and we have to take it seriously. And at this point, there should not be any significant controversy between theists and atheists, those who are interested in steel manning the argument, taking the argument at its, its strongest form. Now, of course, we can tweak the argument and say this could be improved here, there, and so forth, but the effort uh, of laying the argument out in this clear step-by-step -step fashion should be a straightforward, non-controversial process that with some benevolent discussion, both atheists and theists should be agreed upon. Now, at the same time, this argument has been uh, subject to many questions and many criticisms. And so what I want to now do is go through step-by-step -step the argument and raise the kinds of questions and criticisms that uh, the argument has been uh, subject to. And so we'll take step one and we'll ask, is it true? Is it false? Uh, do, are, are the concepts clearly formulated? Should we substitute any other concepts instead? Uh, and anytime we made a therefore move, a logic move, we're taking two previous premises and so on, well, we know what uh, good logic amounts to valid versus invalid forms of reasoning. So we check the logic to make sure that we haven't made any logical errors. If we're being very systematic about this, we will write down our thoughts, our questions. We'll have a little table to make sure that we are, as we know, when we start having arguments and counter arguments and questions and objections and side issues, it's very hard to keep track of it also. Note-taking of some sort is, sort rather, is, uh, is very important. All right, but let's plunge in. Step one, the universe is complexly ordered. So here we have a premise about order and causality. A leads to B, which leads to C, or sometimes A plus B plus C jointly yield D, and there seems to be causal regularities and patterns that we can identify. We can subject them to experiment. In many cases, we can mathematically with great precision formulate exactly what the causal processes are. So true that the universe is complexly ordered or not. Now, I want to just say for, for time reasons that this is not where most of the heat about this argument arises. One can, of course, raise skeptical questions, and some people will do. They'll say things like, well, you know, we've only been scientifically investigating the universe for a relatively short period of time, right, a few centuries, and how much of the actual universe have we investigated care, uh, carefully? Well, only a fraction, so maybe we should be a little cautious about generalizing to the universe as a whole and saying that necessarily it's all cause and effect and, and so forth. So that objection aside, there is nonetheless a significant amount of causal order in the universe. That part is not controversial. Whatever our causal orders that exist in the universe, the question is why are those the way those are and can those be explained from within the universe or do they need some external generation. Now, we might also uh, uh, figure our attention to be directed at the, the word the natural universe. Part of this argument wants to contrapose the natural universe to a supernatural being. Is natural the best word here? Should we say the physical universe? Should we say the material universe? And just to make sure that we're not importing any baggage that's going to uh, lead us astray further in the argument, we should think about that particular concept in which one fits best in the, uh, in the argument. Friedrich Nietzsche was famous for his statement that God is dead and his provocative account of master and slave moralities, and also for the fact that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis claimed that Nietzsche was one of their great inspirations. 
Were the Nazis right to do so, or did they misappropriate Nietzsche's philosophy? Professor Stephen Hicks's concisely written book, Nietzsche and the Nazis, based on the 2006 documentary, corrects many widespread misconceptions about Nietzsche, giving a fascinating and easy-to-understand analysis of Nietzsche's work, asking and answering a number of questions, such as what were the key elements of Hitler and the National Socialist political philosophy? How did the Nazis come to power in a nation as educated and civilized as Germany? What was Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy? The philosophy of live dangerously, and that which does not kill us makes us stronger? And to what extent did Nietzsche's philosophy provide a foundation for the horrors perpetrated by the Nazis? Professor Hicks demonstrates his mastery of this subject using quotes and critical analysis that prove his points and show the true linkage between Nietzsche and the Nazis, and how philosophical ideas move the world. Get your copy of Nietzsche and the Nazis by Stephen Hicks on Amazon.com today. And while you're online, please leave a review for the Open College podcast hosted by Hicks himself on iTunes or Stitcher. Now back to the podcast. All right, now step two, this is the argument or the premise rather that generates the most heat. And this, I think, is uh, the most interesting part of the argument. The claim here is that complex order, and if both sides agree or that there is such, thing, or such things as much complex order, that it cannot have arisen from within the natural universe. Now, what we have, of course, is the word within, which is a spatial concept. And the argument is setting us up for thinking within and without. And so the question will be, you know, uh, does, does it make sense for us and is it appropriate for us to use spatial concepts which seem to apply to natural and physical beings to the universe as a whole? Is the universe in space or is space inside the universe? And if we're going to start talking about things that are outside of the universe, are we speaking literally or are we speaking metaphorically. So that's just to highlight one of the the, the, uh, the pregnant concepts that we are we're starting to use. So should we, instead of saying things are imposed upon, should we say the word generated? Is it better to say that the universe could not have generated its own order, that the generation of the order needs to come from somewhere else? All right, so that's an interesting question about one of the key concepts here. But Mostly what's involved in this premise that complex order cannot be generated from within the universe itself and must be imposed is the entire debate between evolutionary accounts of the universe, including biological, chemical, and physical evolution, for example, the Big Bang theory, and what are creationist or intelligent design theories. It's exactly this premise that all of the ink is being spilt about because evolutionary accounts are claiming precisely that it is possible for complex orderly system to systems to evolve uh, bottom up from relatively simpler systems. So, you know, if for example, you take a certain number of hydrogen atoms and a certain number of oxygen atoms and you just uh, take a whole bunch of hydrogen and a bunch of oxygen and you put them together in a big plastic bag and throw it off a mountain and it bounces down a few thousand meters. Well, what's going to happen is the hydrogen and the oxygen are just going to bang together and at certain points they will bang together in the appropriate force and position and water molecules will be created. So you go down to the bottom of the mountain, undo the bag, and now you've got some complex 
molecules. Uh, originally, you just had hydrogen and oxygen, two simple molecules, now or atoms rather. Now you've got a complex molecule. And so if you just kept doing that over and over again and adding a few more elements with time, uh, you would have increasingly complex molecules arising. Now, the point then is, and we can understand this as a thought experiment right now, if this is possible, then we're assuming that complex order can only occur from external sources and sort of top-down sources. That's an illegitimate assumption. That's something that needs to be argued for. So the design argument at this point that wants to say complex order requires an external orderer is thinking also in terms of a model that we can understand, an explanatory model that also is not a, not a ridiculous model or also. So we can, for example, think of sculpting. You know, so the sculptor might be standing over a workbench on which there is some clay and the clay is just lying there in a somewhat inchoate mass, and the clay all by itself is not going to do anything, and it's certainly not going to generate a statue, say, like Michelangelo's David in, uh, in Florence instead for that incredibly complex arrangement right, of, uh, in that case, marble carving, but imagine we're doing a clay version of it. For that to happen, a sculptor with great intelligence and foresight and skill needs to take the clay and impose structure and order upon it. So that then is to say top-down order is, uh, is necessary uh, and so forth. So the question then is the sufficiency of these two models. Now we do know that there are some cases of simple order giving rise to complex order. We also know that there are many cases of relatively complex order, human beings, for example, giving rise to other things that are complexly ordered, creating musical masterpieces and so forth. So both models are extant in the universe. The question is for all order in the universe, is the evolutionary model sufficient ultimately Ultimately, or is it not sufficient, and so forth. So the point just is, this is the argument that needs to be addressed. And this is why I think the smart people on both sides of the debate spend most of their time there. Now, the third step of the argument also has some controversy to it. It's just to recap, to say complex order exists in the natural world, and complex order uh, requires an external orderer. Therefore, an external orderer exists to impose the order on on the universe. But we'll notice that uh, that step, while logically fine, does make an assumption about the quantity of the order. So it's saying, for example, an orderer exists, or a singular external orderer. And the question is, why would we make that assumption? And maybe we should modify the argument not to make the assumption. And of course, this is a debate between monotheists and polytheists on that, because if we're interested in explaining the, uh, the order in the universe and why things go the way they do, it could be that there's a number of orderers, uh, each of which has uh, his or her or its own agenda, and a different aspects of the universe are under the, uh, under the rule, so to speak, of different orderers. So we might say, for example, that there is the earth goddess, you know, it's from the body of the, the female, that new life arises, and so plants and, and life comes from the earth, but the earth needs to be fertilized by the rain god, and so the rain god comes in the spring and sprinkles the earth goddess, and then she gives life. And so what we have then is a, an explanation for the causal order of 
crops uh, and agriculture. But it's not that there's one god with one plan. Instead, there's two gods in this case. And then maybe, of course, there's the sky god, and the sky god gets angry right, or, or jealous and comes along and sends lightning that destroys some of the crops. And so not necessarily even do all of the gods and goddesses have the same design or the same agenda. And if we really want to understand the way the world works, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's one unified design. Maybe polytheism is a better explanation. So a question then is about the logic of the argument here. Should we conclude that an order exists or uh, some orders exist? And if we're going to then make an argument for monotheism, in addition to the argument from design, we would need to have some further argumentation to say why only one designer rather than a multiple of designers. Now, the step four uh, of the argument also has some interesting controversies about it and some careful qualifiers. One is to say that in many cases, uh, uh, people will uh, substitute the word infinite for, for where I used uh, super. So instead of saying that the orderer, the kind of order that's necessary to explain the, uh, the amazingly complex order in the universe has to be just a superior intelligence, it needs to be an infinitely intelligent being. And then the question then would be, is that really true? Does it need to be infinite? So we might say, for example, you know, the law of gravitational attraction, 9.82 meters per second squared. Uh, you know, that's uh, some interesting mathematics and takes some intelligence to formulate and understand that law. And if uh, we want to imagine the orderer saying, I'm going to impose a law of gravitational attraction upon the universe, and it's going to be 9.82 meters per second squared, does the being need to be infinitely intelligent to formulate that particular law, or Boyle's law, or any other scientific law? And it doesn't seem from the observation of the universe so far that anything beyond some sort of superior intelligence is necessary. So the qualification here is to make sure that we don't assume that we're talking about an infinite being. And again, if we want to argue that the god must be infinite in its powers or intelligence, that is going to take additional argumentation. Step five, there's a question there about the tense that we use. So we say a super intelligent and powerful being or order exists. And right at the very end, we use the present tense. And there's an interesting question about whether the present tense is uh, legitimate or whether we can at most say that at some point in the past, if we want to understand the order that exists in the universe, there must have been a super intelligent, powerful being, but does he still need to exist? Or could it be the case that this was a very powerful being that basically had, you know, one metaphysical function to bring order out of chaos and to set the universe on its way according to its design, but that was all that this being did in the grand metaphysical scheme of the universe and having performed its function, 
it retired or went away or uh, just perhaps went out of existence and came uh, came to be absorbed into uh, the universe that it had had ordered. So there's uh, a broad set of debates between people we consider theists and those we consider deists, and this is one of the issues here. Deists will typically argue that we don't really need to think that God is actively involved in continuing to manage the universe. He's not like uh, you know, the lawgiver and the cop who's uh, still hanging around to make sure that the laws are, are being obeyed, but rather uh, he was so powerful uh, and so intelligent in his design that once he got the universe going, he basically is not needed anymore and is no longer around, and the universe runs entirely on its own, and so we can explain the, the ongoing functions of the universe entirely without appeal to the God. Whereas the theists want to argue by contrast that not only did God exist to create and design the universe and get the universe going, but that God still is a hands-on, actively involved manager who still intervenes to tweak things perhaps, or in other cases in more catastrophic fashion, get the universe back on course. So the question here for further consideration, though, is whether the argument as constructed uh, supports that their God still exists or whether we need supplemental argumentation to, to demonstrate the continued existence of, of God. All right, also about uh, the second last step of the argument, I'm going to call it step six uh, to keep my labeling consistent here. This was to say, well, we have this, uh, you know, big multisyllabic label, super intelligent, powerful creator of the universe, etc. Why don't we just call it God? That's what typically what we mean by God. And so that's fine. But just a baggage point. We know that the word God is used by several religions uh, and uh, several variations on religion. We have to be careful that we're not importing our particular understanding of God into this particular label. So, you know, a gut check here would be to say, if instead of calling this being God, would you be fine with calling it Allah, right, or calling it Yahweh, or Gichi Manitou, or any of the other names that are typically or historically used for a, a, a superior uh, being that uh, that is governing the universe. And if you're not okay with calling the god Allah, right, or Yahweh, that you want to insist on your particular god, by which you mean a different kind of god, then it probably is the case that you are, uh, are tempted to import baggage into this concept of god. And the point would just be that so far, all this argument supports is a pretty stripped-down conception of God. It's not the God of any particular religion with that religion's particularities. It's a seriously intelligent God and a seriously powerful God, and that's it. It's not even obviously yet a good God because there's nothing from when we are observing uh, the laws of gravity or the way uh, uh, you know a seedling grows into a watermelon to say that that's necessarily good or bad. All of the normative concepts that we want to use also in philosophy and that are typically tied up with, uh, with religions, there's nothing yet in our scientific, observational, natural theology understanding of the order of the universe that uh, leads us to ascribe normative properties to the, uh, the God in question. So again, that would require some supplemental argumentation. We all know what true crime is, but what about untrue crime? These are the true stories of alleged crimes which turned out to not have happened at all. 
the true stories of innocent people whose lives have been ripped apart and who have not been allowed to tell their stories until now. Listen to Untrue Crime on the Possibly Correct Network as Diana Davison sheds light onto cases where reputations have been ruined, careers have been destroyed, and countless lies have been told. Find out what really happens when the finger of blame points to someone who's innocent. Subscribe to the Untrue Crime Podcast by going to www.untruecrimepodcast.com and follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Minds.com and Gab for all the latest news and releases. You can check out all of our podcasts by following Possibly Correct on Minds.com. Now back to the podcast. Now moving on to the seventh step in the argument. Suppose uh, um, we conclude hypothetically or for the sake of argument that everything in the argument is fine. We can make the adjustments that are necessary. We can answer the questions and the objections so far. We get to the point where now step seven, we say, yes, God exists, uh, given the premises and the logic that is a, a, a sound conclusion to reach at this point. There's still an additional very interesting question that can be raised at this point, and it comes in the form of a, a, a posing a dilemma for the argument, that the argument, to the extent that it is valid, refutes itself or leads to an infinite regress that is, that is problematic. So suppose we say, okay, God exists, and we're willing to, to grant that, but then we ask, this God that we've just proved exists, is God orderly? And is, is God perhaps complexly orderly? And of course, that's the initial question that set us off on this whole, whole, whole natural theology trek. We're noticing that the natural universe is orderly, and that's what we're trying to explain, right? Where does the order come from? So now we have appealed to a God to explain the natural order. So it makes then sense that our philosophically curious minds would say, well, this God is, what's the nature of this God? Is he an orderly being? The question then is a yes or no uh, question. So we can either say, no, God is not an orderly being, or God is yes. And what's interesting is that either answer is problematic uh, according to the terms of the argument that we've constructed. So if, for example, we were to say, no, no, uh, God is not orderly. He is, uh, he's disorderly, he's chaos, he's uh, not anything that uh, is cause and effect, right, and so forth. Well, then the problem, of course, would be uh, if we've got this cause and effect, uh, sorry, this, this cause and effect that we're supposed to be trying to explain the order in the natural world by appealing to a cause that's a disorderly God, that doesn't make any sense. That's a kind of a non-explanation. And so the other side of the dilemma uh, seems to be the right the, the right way to approach the question. Say, well, yes, of course, God is an orderly being. And that seems, in fact, built into the kind of God that we are conceiving of to explain the natural order. Intelligence and power and intelligence is, of course, a, a sophisticated kind of order. People who are intelligent, they have a lot of thoughts, and those thoughts are connected and ordered and integrated, and everything fits together in a very sophisticated fashion. And so God's intelligence is a supremely complexly ordered structure, right? whatever it is. And the same thing with respect to being powerful and skillful. A powerful and skillful person is a person who's able to marshal all of uh, his or her energies in a particular direction, in a particular structure, and make certain things happen. So God's got his act together, so to speak, intellectually and powerfully. He is a highly 
orderly being, and it's because of his superior order that the order that exists in the natural world comes into existence and is best explained. But then we have a problem because uh, the second premise of the argument was to say that complex order cannot emerge from within right, the universe. And so then the question is going to be if we want to say complex order requires an external orderer to impose it, then it seems like we would have to apply that to God. We would have to say, yes, God is orderly, and order cannot emerge from within something. It needs to be imposed from above. So that then would imply that there must be an external super-duper orderer beyond God who imposed order upon God, who then imposed order upon the universe. And already, of course, this is a suspect and a direction that we don't want to go, because as soon as we then say, well, that this super super god that uh, imposed the order upon God, who imposed the order on the universe. Well, what about that god, the super god? Is he orderly? Uh, yes or no? And again, we'd have to say, well, yes, he's very orderly. Well, what explains his orderly? And if it can't be emerging from within, it has to be externally imposed. And we'd have to say there's a super duper god. And then, of course, we're on to a super duper duper god and super duper duper. And soon we're babbling for a long period of time. And we are not really explaining anything. That then is to say we have an infinite regress and uh, an unpalatable infinite regress. So the criticism here is that the appeal to an external orderer uh, on the supposition that uh, there can't be internally self-order uh, or, or uh, internally self-ordering causality in the universe, then uh, then we end up in a self-defeating infinite regress, and we're not explaining anything. Now, of course, the people who are on the uh, def side of defending the argument from design, they will want to say, no, 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 no. We don't want to go down this, uh, this infinite regress. Of course, we have to break the regress by saying God-imposed order on the universe, and that's it. We don't go to a super God or a super duper God and so forth because God is an exceptional being. God is self-generating, and the order that he has is self-creating, self-sustaining, and so forth. So, God is an exceptional being that generates from within himself his own order, which is then imposed upon the universe. That's the explanatory model. And, of course, the counter-response to that then is going to be to say, well, look, uh, you're just making exceptions here. And if at some point you're going to say there has to be self-generating and self-sustaining order, uh, why not just uh, make the exception right at the beginning, saying the universe exists and it generates its own order, uh, end of the story. And then we just go and do our science to figure out uh, the way the, uh, the, the the particular orders of the universe happen to work. But we don't try to get outside the universe to find an additional source of the universe. Uh, yeah, st start with existence and order as uh, axiomatically built within the universe, end of story. And the other side then wants to say that there's something unsatisfying about that. We do need to make the exception in the case of God, and that's more intellectually satisfying. But that's precisely where the debate is. If you're going to say God is self-generating with respect to his order versus the universe is self-generating with respect to its order, how do we adjudicate over which of those models is more or less intellectually satisfying? All right. Now, that uh, is a run-through of uh, a very interesting argument. 
And it's only the beginning, though, of some very deep investigating about a number of philosophically and religiously pregnant concepts. And I think the power of this argument and uh, its, its uh, long shelf life is uh, a testament to the fact that it's putting its finger on some very fundamental things that we thoughtful beings like to think about. Identity. Uh, where does identity come from? Is it built into the nature of things or does it need to be imposed? What's the relationship between identity and causality, cause and effect? Is uh, cause and effect a function of identity or is cause and effect something that is additionally imposed upon identity? Instead of causal laws, should we be talking about causal principles? Because if we say laws, that implies a law giver, and already we have two entities. Or should we just say that when we're talking about these things we call scientific laws, really that's a scientific principle, and that's just our identification of a fundamental fact that's built into the, the natural universe. The nature of observation and logic, natural theology says that that's how we should orient ourselves. Of course, those who are more naturalistic want to say we uh, uh, evolved extraordinarily sophisticated sensory capacities and conceptual faculties with our big brain. And those who are in the natural theology tradition but theists, they want to conclude that uh, religion is compatible entirely with uh, our understanding of uh, reason and observation and logic. And the hope there is that uh, God created us with the powers of observation and logic, and precisely he wants us to use them in order to understand the natural universe that he made, and so science and natural theology ultimately should be harmoniously integrated in a proper religion. And then, of course, uh, questions about the adequacy of explanation and what's problematic and unsettling about infinite regresses. Those also are interesting things that the argument arises. Now, my view is that the criticisms of this argument uh, are stronger than the, uh, uh, the arguments defenders uh, are able to respond to. In my judgment, I do think the design argument is the best of the natural theology arguments. But I do agree with, uh, you won't find me saying this very often, I do agree with Kierkegaard, I do agree with Kant, and I do agree with Hume that the argument fails. Uh, it's interesting. All smart people should spend some time with the argument and make up their own mind against, uh, uh, with respect to it. And I'm happy to uh, entertain the uh, um, further objections and learn more as uh, in Open College we continue to explore deep questions in philosophy and religion. The host of the Open College podcast, Dr. Stephen Hicks, is a renowned philosopher and author. His field of study and insights into postmodernism explain how it has become one of the most powerful intellectual movements of our time and what that actually means. If you'd like to access more information from Dr. Hicks himself, then check out his website at www.stephenhicks.org. You'll be able to find details on his latest publications, courses, and philosophical information concerning business ethics, education, intellectual history, and religion. To stay up to date with the latest from Stephen Hicks himself, make sure you've subscribed to the Open College Podcast feed and follow at Open College Podcast on all your favorite social networks. And while you're online, 
please leave the show a review on iTunes and Stitcher. 